Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 193 for April 23, 2009. Conficker. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by GoToMyPC. Unchain yourself from your office PC and access it from anywhere with GoToMyPC. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now. We're ready to cover your security butt with Mr. Steve Gibson from the Gibson Research Corporation, the creators of the SpinRight, the fabulous SpinRight Disk Maintenance and Recovery Utility, and uh, discoverer of spyware and our security guru. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. It's great to be with you again. Welcome This back. week, as always, as we approach our 200th episode, we're at 193 and counting. So wow. Actually, I'm excited about uh, 208. Since that will be four times 52, meaning that it's the, the end of our fourth year as we go into our fifth. And you, only you can do that math because only you do a show every week. You're amazing. Never missed one. He's the Iron Man of podcasting. <laughs> and it's so funny, too, because when you first suggested this years ago, I thought, well, Leo, I kind of like the idea, but there's no way we're going to have enough to talk about. That's, and you know now we've got people complaining that I, we've got sh- we got we I have promises for future episodes backed too. up because <laughs> we're I just up. can't get to them. <laughs> I love it, but we will, we will, we will. Well, let's start. Uh, we're going to talk about um, I think the number one security topic of the month, the year, who knows, maybe the decade. Conficker. Well, yes, I don't think we've ever really gone into great depth about any previous worms or, for that matter, viruses because. There really hasn't been that much to them. I mean, it's like, okay, so, you know, MS Blast sprays the Internet with packets trying to spread. Well, Conficker is interesting to me and to the, you know, to our, I'm sure to our audience and the broader Internet because it is a phenomenally sophisticated worm. It is, you know, it's defying all attempts at eradication. It is managing to survive. The author is dynamically updating it literally in lockstep with all attempts to 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 thwart it um, in th- that have been made by the industry and the so-called Conficker cabal, which is a group of of white hat companies, Microsoft and the AV companies that are getting together to 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 deal with it. And but there's so much to it. And so the, the, it just, you know, it would make for a really interesting and meaty episode. So I decided, you know, let's let's really, you know, talk about exactly what Conficker does. And my feeling is by the time we're through with our listeners today, Leo, <laughs> there'll be a greater sense of respect for for how bad and sort of deeply bad these things can be. I mean, there's just so much this thing does. Well, as you say, uh, you couldn't really do it ever before. I mean, uh, the stuff was... There wasn't much to talk about. Was, I mean, I guess you could say, wow, isn't it interesting that uh, they're using email now to spread or they're 
you know, that they're uh, that they're able to uh, live on the net. But there wasn't great programming involved. This sounds like this is pretty sophisticated. Well, it, it digitally signs its its transmissions to prevent anyone from being able to spoof them. State I mean, of the art. This is state of the art. We're going to talk about it all today. Well, before we do that, uh, I know we want to get some security news out there, as always, and some yep. uh, errata, if there may be any. Uh, before we do that, however, I do want to mention our friends at Astaro. Every month, we like to just tell you about Astaro, remind you they're out there. Astaro makes the incredible Astaro Security Gateway, which is, uh, I, I, I guess the term uh, the security gurus use is UTM. It's a Unified Threat Management Device. It's an appliance. Looks about the size of a router, although you could tell it's bullet. I mean, this thing is bulletproof. It's made of steel, a little bit bigger, um, and it does oh, everything you can imagine. The best of breed in both commercial and open source security software. Of course, an industrial strength firewall, uh, but also content filtering, intrusion protection, complete and very sophisticated uh, VPN capabilities. You've got IPsec, L2TP over IPsec, PPTP tunneling with SSL. I like the SSL. That's so nice. Makes it very easy to use. In fact, I think it's the only UTM on the market with such a wide variation of VPM and remote access choices built into it. It's just fantastic. Also, SMIME and OpenPGP built in. So you can encrypt and sign your email automatically. Inbound email can be decrypted automatically. Your users don't even know it's happening, but you've got that absolutely secure email. Three kinds of antivirus filters, two for the web, one for email. I mean, or is it the other way around? I can't remember. It's got three. It's, an, it's enough. Always updated with the amazing Astaro up-to-date facility. You don't have to worry about that. It's got two for email and one for web. That's it. Because email now is where all this stuff comes from. Um, Anti-spyware, instant messenger, peer-to-peer control, of course, conficker protection. Give me a break. If you want to try it out in your business, get a free demo right now. Call 877-4-ASTARO. 877-427-8276. It's toll-free in the U.S. If you're outside the U.S., visit Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com, slash security now. And if you're a non-commercial user, Starro really wants to encourage uh, non-commercial users, young people, students, and so forth to try it out. It's free. In fact, there's a great VMware appliance. You can makes it easy to install. Limited to 10 IPs, 10 users, and 1,000 concurrent connections. That's, that's pretty generous. You even get the 79 euro Starro up-to-date subscription bundle. So you get everything free if you're a non-commercial user. Try it free in your business. Try it for non-commercial people from astaro.com. 877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O. We thank them so much for their support of Security Now. It's nice to have them uh, back. What we what we decided to do is just do a monthly thing with them. Yeah. Because I think, I think everybody everybody knows about them. If you've listened to Security Now, it's, it's not a new name. So uh, what is the security news? What's going on in the wonderful Lots world? Lots of stuff here. Um, you probably heard... That a verdict came down in the Pirate Bay oh, yeah. case. Oh, yeah. Um, the four guys that were the defendants were found guilty uh, of breaking Swedish copyright law for their involvement uh, in the Pirate Bay website. Three were the, the maintainers of the site and one was the financier. Um, they were sentenced to one year each in prison in order to pay 30 million kroner, which is about three and a half million U.S. dollars, 
to various media companies who brought the suit. Um, they plan to appeal the verdict, so we don't know how that will turn out. You know, they were as defiant as ever. I mean, they, these are the most defiant guys you've ever seen. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was a significant verdict in that the, despite the fact that their defense was that they are not hosting copyrighted content, the argument was, yes, but they're making it, they're facilitating the the clear violation of the copyright holder's rights. And that was enough to find them guilty. They uh, are probably judgment proof. They've already said, we don't have the money. We don't intend to pay it. We're, uh, we're appealing. And the really, the, the, you know, whatever you feel about them, the bottom line is it hasn't shut the Pirate Bay down. It won't because they, you know, this, as they say on their page, we are from the internets. <laughs> you can't. It's not, you can't stop us. Um, and, you know, they make an interesting point. I wonder what you think about this. They say we're just a search engine in the same way that Google's a search engine. Are you going to take Google to court because you can search for pirated stuff on Google? That's I mean, that is a good point. My uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's gray. Um, I'm I'm trying to think whether I've ever needed anything from there no i don't think no. so i don't <laughs> think so no i mean they, they, let's let's face it they, i mean they the name kind of says it all <laughs> they're not really saying we're uh we're just yeah just... <laughs> but again you know we can't we can't i mean part of free speech is you get to name things what you want yeah. and uh you know that's just too tough for if people don't like what you chose so. well the court's ruled and that's the that's the bottom yeah. line and i know that the recording industry and the movie industry are, are happy as can be yeah. Well, in another interesting bit of news, um, Amazon.uk has been the first of a number of high-profile companies to announce that it is going to block Form from scanning its pages. Yeah. Uh, form, of course, we've talked about. We, we brought up some news about it last week. In fact, P-H-O-R-M is the really sort of nasty, very invasive technology that ISPs are still toying around with deploying, even though its technology is completely unproven. I mean, it's amazing how much negativity is being generated by this company where it's not even clear that what they're doing is going to be effective. You know, they end up planting their own cookies in every single website you visit so your browser ends up just stuffed with with, with their cookies because they add them to every site you visit by intercepting your connection to ISPs and dynamically seeding your web browser so anyway what the reason they scan pages is when when people go to a site like like somebody who's using unfortunately a form enhanced ISP would go to Amazon.uk. Well, the form servers would be notified of that. They perform a keyword search of the of the site you go to, like Amazon, to figure out what kind of site it is. And then on the fly, they inject their own advertising, which is supposed to be rel- you know um, germane to to where you are. So Amazon is saying we're going to block form from from doing keyword search scans on our website and, you know, actively resist it. Um, and there's a, there's an open rights group uh, based in the UK that has asked, you know, high profile websites like Amazon, AOL, Microsoft, eBay, YouTube, and so forth to opt out 
of participating uh, with form. And so Amazon in the UK is the first one to do so. Good. So congratulations for them. For Big that. victory yes. for uh, all privacy advocates. Yeah, this just, you know, it's again, it's that there is no informed consent. I have no problem. And most people have no problem if it's if a user formally says, and that's not P-H-O-R-M formally, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> formally, Officially. with great formality. <laughs> yes. uh, if they if they formally allow form to do this, then fine. Then, you know, get get tracked and have your browser filled with cookies and so forth. But but the whole problem is that, you know, this is just was well, in fact, the suit that's being brought by the by the European Commission is due to the fact that there was no consent provided during British Telecom's BT's previous secret testing of this technology. It was just being done to users without their knowledge or permission. So, you know, that's not okay. Yeah. Um, one other little bit of news is that, oh, actually two more. Uh, one is that there was a, a report put out by Verizon Business that said that it had responded in 08 to at least 90 confirmed data breaches involving on the order of 285 million consumer records. And what was worrisome about this, I mean, this is a huge number, 285 million consumer records. What was most worrisome was that the number of breaches and the size of the breaches in total was larger than all of the breaches in 04, 05, 06, and 07. So in the, the, the previous, so 08 dwarfed the sum of breaches in the previous four years. Holy cow. I mean, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was that bad. Wow. And they, interestingly, um, it turns out that the breaches at banks and financial institutions were responsible for 93% of all such records compromised last year. So, I mean, these are high value targets. Now, in a strange little twist, there's a side effect of this. So much of this material breached, you know, stolen consumer records is now available on the black market that the prices have fallen on the black market and the bad guys are not any longer making as much money as they used I to. Yes, that's because, good because they're waiting around in all of this stuff. I guess that's a silver lining. Yeah, I'm not so <laughs> it's, sure. It's but, not that good. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And then the last little bit of news, I'm sure you picked up on this one too, is that the Pentagon found spies uh, in their in the network for the Joint Strike Fighter project. This is a $300 billion program uh, that the Pentagon is running. It's the most sophisticated weaponry we have yet. The network was hacked, and get this, several terabytes of files, which were encrypted by the bad guys before, uh, before leaving the network. So no one knows exactly what it was that was taken, but several terabytes of data over the last about a year and a half. This is unconscionable. They know that it was the design and the avionics material uh, were siphoned off and sent somewhere. Awful. We don't know where. Um, it's believed to be China, but again, as we've said, that you know, it's impossible to really nail down full accountability on on these things. So, um, uh, but it was uh, 
uh, a you know a big concern and a black eye for the Pentagon. And uh, I mean, and I really hope that we begin paying attention to this because it just seems like this is this is rapidly on the rise. This is the 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 most publicized, worst such such incident we've seen so far. Steve, how um, do you explain this? This is not something that is hard to protect. These are valuable, hundred of billion dollars worth of value state secrets. First of all, why is this stuff even on internet connected computers? Yeah, I know. Why um, is it, it not secured if it is? The Wall Street Journal's report indicated that the most sensitive of the material was is on its separate network, which is not connected to the internet. So, you know, there is some sense of that, but clearly this material, which is on internet connected machines, should also not have been in that network. Well, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not rocket science. We know how to protect this stuff, right? Yes, yes. I mean, we do in theory. And in fact, that, that's why I'm so very nervous about the push that we're seeing towards medical records being put online. It's like, oh, goodness. I mean, I mean, I recognize we want to bring our, our health care costs down in the U.S. And it's one of uh, the current administration's major pushes. But it's like, you know, we we there's just no demonstration that government knows how to do this. And I haven't yet seen a smart government person. I mean, that's sort of an oxymoron. I mean, in terms of like like technology and real security protection. Well, come on. The NSA must have smart people. Uh, there must be some smart people. You think these people but are then, just then, doofuses? Then is, it, then is it bureaucracy that I prevents? I can't figure I mean, it out. Yeah, I agree. The NSA down deep in some think tank behind locked doors with all kinds of, you know, authentication. They've got really, really good people. But it's very much like it's very much like you don't put your good people on tech support. You put them on development. And so, you know, the people doing tech support, it's too expensive to have a good person and have them, you know, talk to customers. So you have sort of an okay enough person who deals with customers and maybe they're able to escalate that to somebody who's more capable. You know, similarly, the NSA is not going to have their really good guys, you know, doing IT networking because there's like really more important things that they need to be doing. And, uh, I mean, but, but again, I mean, this is sort of, this sort of comes back to my rant, which I will not recap from last week, you know, where I was talking about how much we have grown to put up with windows. And I was reminded that speaking of Conficker, that, you know, it knocked this, the, um, I think it was the Sheffield hospitals, uh, the Sheffield hospital chain in the UK off the net, I mean, I mean, all, all out of operating mode for some length of time because the equipment in the operating theater was running Windows and was on the internet. So, you know, first of all, you, you, it's worrisome that that critical care equipment would have Windows as its operating system, and also critical that it would be on the internet. It's like, oh, well, we turned off. Windows update because the machines used to reboot in the middle of an operation. Like, oh, my, no. what? How many things can you have wrong with the picture? But this, I understand, and there, are, no, I understand this. But this is the nation's <laughs> most critical military secrets, 
And they're not only sitting on the internet, but they're apparently doing so with, you know, no really good protection. Yeah. I mean, if you had these military secrets in your house, Steve, you could lock them down. Right? Uh, yes, I could. actually. <laughs> Although, yes, you could. My world is much simpler. In fairness, mm. my world is much simpler. I guess they there, have contractors who are looking at the plans over online or there's some sort of. I mean, there's something like, going oh, on. Don't worry. We'll just put this little website up that allows you to, you know, do vendor agreements or something. And so there's some cross site scripting <sighs> vulnerability that allows them to get into the server. There, there was a guy many, many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, who used to call me through, I mean, literally like a sci fi mode, linking through multiple satellites and jumping around between different points so that I couldn't track him back. And he projected his identity. And he used to tell me in detail how he was roaming around inside of Microsoft's most sensitive networks and how he would find, you know, some entry point in the UK through an affiliate that would he was able to bridge across network interface cards from an, an external network to an e, to the internal network and and then you know jump from there over through two other offices to redmond and you know convinced me through what evidence he produced that you know he was really doing this and it's because as you say leo these networks are incredibly complex lots of interconnections and at some point doubtless this this network was established by people who knew what they were doing and it was really bolted down and secure. But then over time, stuff got added. I mean, all it takes is for someone to stick an infected USB thumb drive into any machine on that network. And unfortunately, if it's running Windows and it's processing, um, you know, uh, autorun.inf files and it you know may have been stuck in a laptop before that that had Conficker B on it because Conficker version B would jump over to removable drives when they appeared. Um, that's all it would take to suddenly you know have the malware on that machine. Or as we know, um, social engineering attacks are highly effective. So some some you know Excel document or plans or something was sent to somebody who was expect in, in who was expecting them. And um, sure enough, you know, there was a, a virus that wrote in some sort of malware came in. And so it, it's it's not that hard to set these things up. So at the start, they're secure, but it's it's really difficult over time to maintain that level, that initial level of vigilance. And I think that's what happens is is, you know, it's like, well, we'll just connect this up briefly or I'll I'll just open a port in my firewall just you know for you know for some specific event and then we forget and it stays open and something crawls in it just seems to me this isn't rocket science and it should be something that uh uh look I understand if a bank gets hacked I understand if a hospital gets hacked I don't want our military secrets to get hacked I mean there's just certain things or our or our infrastructure, our grid. Uh, I hope we've yeah. learned. I hope we've learned something here, ladies and gentlemen. The, the experts who were asked about this said that the nature of this breach is such that it arguably makes the, the, the whoever it is who received the information would 
have received enough to do a much better job yeah. at defending against of course. what this technology is meant to do for us. You know, we did the the Blackbird, the the, the stealth bomber, the stealth uh, fighter. All of that was secret. We got the jump on them. We did the Manhattan Project. We got the jump on them. Yeah, that was a, the good news was, but there was no internet back then. I mean, this this global network really is a mixed blessing. Yeah, I, mean, I don't have to tell any of our listeners that. It well, is, take it off the freaking public internet then, if you can't figure it out. Yeah, right, and, and the, see, that's the other problem too, is that because it is you know the positive side, the internet can be so useful that not having connectivity because starts to become an increasing problem. You worry, it's like, wait a minute, we can't, we can't not be on the internet in order to be in business. I mean, well, it, couldn't it, they make, I mean, look, if they're, if it's defense contractors, I mean, okay, legitimately, they might need a network to see this stuff, but they could do a VPN and secure it and not allow public internet access. You shouldn't be surfing the net on a, on a machine that has the plans. I mean, it just seems like there's ways to do this. I, I, maybe, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not a, a non-trivial I'm thing. I'm sure that this system was Far more sophisticated than you know than the typical corporate or home network. Oh, I would there's, hope. I yeah. mean, I mean, there's no doubt about it. But clearly, it whatever it, however it was, this actually happened, and we have no details about you know the actual details of of how this happened. But I'm sure that it, it was you know somebody on the outside really wanting to get access to this who spent time working on how to do it. And and the problem is that we've seen, you know, digital technology is a little more analog than we wish it were. You know, sure, everything is a one or a zero, but you know, there are there are ways around absolute protections like firewalls, which you do think, okay, that's an absolute protection. It's like, well, yes, but what if the firewall itself? I mean, you know, Cisco just did, a, a, as we reported, did a recent patch of iOS. There were a bunch of problems with this with with the Cisco iOS. So, so anyone who's using defensive technology is depending upon the defensive technology itself to be safe and and accurate and correct. But if it's not, and we we keep seeing instances where it's not, then that creates a way in. I mean, the, unfortunately, complexity is the enemy of security, and we do keep making these systems more and more complex, which makes them harder and harder to secure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna calm down here. Um, I had something interesting happen that I just wanted to bring up to our users as a little bit of a rata. Um, one of the things that Microsoft did in XP that was very nice was they they limit file and printer sharing to your local network. That is, it's like okay, why didn't it? Why didn't they do this a long time ago? But it's nice that they did it. So if you look under the firewall configuration, when a default install of Windows XP, that is everyone's XP and, and Vista for that matter, that that is is in use will have file and printer sharing enabled by default. Um, and what that means is that you've got frightening services listening on ports 137, 139, and 445. You know, the, the, the standard really scary ports that Windows has. Well, 
when you're behind a router, as we know, your network is protected by the router. Nothing can come in through those ports in the normal case. We'll, we're going to be hearing about an exception to that when we talk about Configure in a minute. But, but normally, you're safe. Well, Microsoft enhanced the protection by not allowing packets to leave the LAN, the local area network. And so file and printer sharing is on by default, but even, even if you had a um, even if you had access to the global internet, file and printer sharing is protected, so it, it will not it will it, it will not allow traffic to come in from a global address, only from a local address. So that seems fine. Except it occurred to me the other day when I was at Starbucks that with their change to AT&T, we've, uh, they used to be T-Mobile, they're now AT&T, we lost all encryption. So Starbucks, for example, corporate, is a, an open Wi-Fi network. You need, you, you, you need a, you, there's like an intercept page, it's not an open hotspot in, in that someone could just walk in and get on the internet. So you've got to, there's all kinds of rigmarole yeah. they've yeah. got with, you know, register your Starbucks cards and so forth. I still have my T-Mobile account, so I'm able to use my T-Mobile account through the AT&T interface, but it's an open, that is, a, it's a non-encrypted network. What occurred to me is, ah, right, that means not only is all the traffic sniffable, but everybody's laptop in a given Starbucks location is by definition on the same LAN, right. which means all of our file and printer sharing ports are open to each other by default, which is, for example, exactly what something like Conficker wants because it scans the local network looking, for, uh, looking to make TCP connections on port 445. So I don't know what people's habits of, of use of their laptops are, but I wanted to remind people that it is very simple if you do not need file and printer sharing for your Wi-Fi connection, it's easy to to unbind it is the term from the Wi-Fi adapter. Leave it bound to your e- your regular hardwired Ethernet adapter. So when your laptop is plugged in, physically plugged in at home, given that oh, that's you a good idea, plug it into a wire. There you've got file and printer sharing. But unless you really need file and printer sharing wirelessly, I absolutely strongly recommend that it, it's just a matter of turning off the check marks on for file and printer sharing um, and also to turn off Net, net BIOS, uh, which is still in there for some reason, uh, turn that off. Um, and then th- those ports are not open. Those protocols are not available to wireless, which is, you know, because... There, you know, you never know where you're going to be hooking into a non-encrypted network. You, you figure you're secure because you're behind, like, the corporate firewall or a NAT router, but you are participating in a LAN with everybody else on the LAN. So you're implicitly trusting every other machine on the LAN not to be going after yours. And uh, they, it might well be, they, yeah. you know, one or more might well be. Right. Certainly that's the case if you've got Conficker 
anywhere on the LAN, as we'll be discussing. That's a nice little fix, simple little thing to do, though. Just disable it on the Wi-Fi. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Just unbind it from Wi-Fi. And I have a, an interesting little uh, report of success from someone named Jerry who sent us email saying, just a note, just just a thank you note. He said, Steve, I bought Spinrite version six last year and it saved my butt then. But I'm writing to let you know how much I appreciate the product now. You see, I couldn't make a disk image of my laptop's hard disk drive. I kept getting write error or disk full error messages. Hmm. Hmm. Well, the disk wasn't full, so it had to be a write error. I ran check disk slash F and slash R, but no errors were found. So I ran Spinrite version 6 in mode 2, and it also found no errors either. A retry of creating a disk image was still unsuccessful. So I turned again to Spinrite and found that I could change the mode, Spinrite's mode, while it was running mode 2. I changed the mode where it reads and rewrites the data. That was just what was needed. I guess some of the data was weakly stored. The data was strong enough to be read properly by check disk and Spinrite mode 2, but not strong enough to pass a verification test between it and its image. By having Spinrite, I saved myself untold trouble of having to buy another hard disk drive and transferring data to it. Who knows how that would have gone? I just had to let you know how much I appreciate this product. Grace and peace, Jerry. Isn't that nice? So, yeah. another happy Spinrite success Happy Spinrite customer. Love those. All right, so we're going to talk about Conficker and uh, yep. great detail, how it works, how it was written, all that uh, interesting stuff in just a second. Before we do, though, I want to uh, mention our friends at Citrix. They do the great product called Go to My PC. This is a remote access product. And you've heard us talk a lot about uh, security issues with remote access. It's kind of almost seems built in. I just want to point out, Go to My PC has never had, to my knowledge anyway, and I'd love, I have not been corrected yet, uh, to my knowledge, has never had a security flaw because it uses 128-bit SSL, a well-known standard security system that just works. It's just one more reason why you want to take a look at Go to My PC. You can try it free at gotomypc.com. Why do you want to use it? Well, why be changed to your office computer? You know, remote access... I don't have to sell you on the idea of being able to access your office computer remotely. You can go home early. You can get work done. You don't have to come in after a vacation or a long weekend to an inbox full of mail. You can kind of prune it before you come in. Uh, when you travel, you know, you'll always have access to uh, those most vital resources. Go to my PC does all of that. You can set it up right now in just a couple of minutes. NAT traversal means you don't have to configure the firewall, open dangerous ports, nothing like that. It's very straightforward, 128-bit encrypted from your computer to your office computer. Try it free for 30 days. Go to mypc.com slash security now. Go to mypc.com slash security now. You get a 30-day free trial. You can use any program. You'll see, you know, when you do it, you, you let's say you're at an internet cafe. You're at one of those scary places that like Starbucks that Steve talks about. <laughs> and uh, you just you just log in. See, the, the way this works, because the net traversal is so cool. So you log into using HTTPS to go to mypc.com, and then it routes your traffic, also using SSL, to your office computer. Now you've got a direct link, an SSL tunnel to your office computer. No one can spy on you. No one can see what you're doing. All the data, including your surfing, is, is encrypted. You can run any program, access any network resource. You can even drag and drop files. All safe and secure. 
It's convenient, it's easy, and I want you to try it right now. Go to mypc.com slash security now for that 30-day free trial. We really appreciate their support, and we know you're going to like it. That's one of the reasons I'm glad to have Citrix and go to MyPC as an advertiser. Go to mypc.com slash security now. All right, Stephen, let's talk Conficker. Now, I want to, I need two ground rules laid first, or well, okay, one ground rule and, and a little bit of technology. Um, I, I'm sure people understand, they know me well enough to know that when I'm, when I say I'm impressed by something, it doesn't at all mean that I'm endorsing it or thinking it's a good idea. Um, there is a lot of state-of-the-art, impressive technology in in Conficker. It's not it's not bleeding edge by any means. It's it's not something no one has seen before. It's that somebody who was not your typical script kitty, who was not taking stuff somebody else did and just sort of mindlessly duplicating it, but whoever is the author or authors of this this series of the, the this genus of worms, because we've had now four of them. Um, and there's maybe a fifth one on the way, um, you know, they really understand this technology. So it's certainly the case that that anybody who really understands networking, I mean, I could write Conficker. There's, you know, any of the the smart guys um, in uh, in networking security companies could write Conficker. I mean, you know, it's it's not like this is rocket science, but this is unique for what it is that is that it is it's it's been done in a in a way that is is really reacting um in lockstep to the industry's attempts to to counteract it and how, gonna... how good would you say the guy or guys who wrote this are i mean you said you you could do it any any competent security professional could do it but can you look at the the coding and say this guy knows what he's doing is he a professional is he a kid do you have any sense of that yeah i would say um i, I guess i don't know we, we, i mean f- f- first of all somebody can be good at any age so we don't have yeah, any sense right. for their th- 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 there isn't any nonsense in it for example ah. some of the some of the early bots had had you know like like used f- uh, four letter word right variables right yeah yeah. which sort of made you think okay there's we're a little maturity compromised here (laughs) in in this case there isn't any of that um it's can you see variable names you can't can you um you're not well no but there we don't have the source code but you can disassemble it variable they weren't variable names they were like embedded strings in the executable where it was just like okay you know this is you know not somebody we need to take too seriously although you know their tools were often times potent, but because they had patched these, you know, patched code that they got from somewhere else. This is clearly being written by somebody who knows what they're doing. And as I said, by the time we're through discussing this in detail, I think that our our listeners are going to have a strong sense for it's like, okay, uh, you know, it in, in many ways, this raises the bar. The Conficker has wow. gotten a huge amount of press. It is um, it's been dissected by really smart guys, and so, so th- there's th- there's now like okay, anybody else who's going to do a worm is 
likely going to do everything Confricker does. Now, it is worth giving this guy credit for several things. There is there is new technology in this. For example, the way it generates its domain names that we haven't seen before. It's like what some good guy who, I mean, someone who is really networking aware, who sat down and said, okay, how can I have malicious code scattered around the internet somehow find a server to update itself and prevent somebody from reverse engineering the code to see what the domain is that I'm going to be contacting. For example, you know, back when I was tracking down the the, the IRC driven botnet that was attacking GRC many years ago, I was able to look at the traffic, see what the IRC server was that the bot was contacting. And then, you know, I wrote my own pseudo IRC client and logged into the same channel on the IRC server and and watched all the bots talking with, with sort of my own version of an IRC client. Well, so I was able to do that because there was a static domain name that all of the bots in that particular network were contacting. Well, Conferker doesn't do anything like that. Conferker has a whole several aspects of next generationness to it. So while the technology is not is is not surprising the fact that it has been employed is arguably surprising and unique so you know that's really what's new um okay the other the the, the second thing is i need to explain what a thread is because conficker is highly multi-threaded and i realized as i was preparing my notes for what i want to discuss that I'm. I mean, I live in Threadland. Threads are one of my favorite abstractions in programming. Threads but, are us. But if people don't understand what a thread is, for me to say, oh, and it spawns three threads to do this, they're going to be like, what? what? What's a spawning of a thread? So, a thread is a is an abstraction of computer execution. It, you know, everyone's sort of familiar, probably, with the notion that a, that a computer does one thing at a time. It executes one little instruction, you know, add two things together, and then maybe another one. Oh, if the result is greater than something, then jump to here and then do something else. So the point is, as we know, computer programs are one thing at a time. And it's because the computers are very fast that all those little things add up to something substantial, like recalculating your spreadsheet or, you know, 3D rendering at Disney. I mean, you know, phenomenally amazing stuff comes out of just lots of little additions and multiplications and, and, and decisions being made one at a time. Well, as computer science has evolved, it's been nice to have a program, a single program, being able to sort of do more than one thing at a time. Windows had one approach, which is a a so-called messaging paradigm, where you'd have a so-called message loop, and it would go and and do something, then come back to the message loop and get the next thing to do and go do that and then come back. And so it kind of kept checking back in. Well, that was one way of creating sort of a feeling of asynchronous events. A different way 
is through something called a thread. So if you imagine this series of steps I was talking about, you know, doing one thing at a time, add, compare, jump, you know, store, load, one thing at a time. If you imagine that's a a a chain of instructions or so-called a thread of execution, then it's possible to to have one thread spawn that is start another thread. So it sort of sort of forks into two uh, chains of execution. Now, we know that the computer itself can only be really doing one thing at a time. Now, that's evolved a little bit as we have like a multi-core processor where we actually have multiple cores. But, but if we just take the case of a single processor, this model actually works well no matter how many cores you have. What happens is a thread is going along happily doing its thing, and then it's preempted. That is, the the operating system says, okay, you've had enough time. We're going to switch over to another thread, the other thread, for example, if there were two, and let it run for a while. Well, this switching happens so quickly and so often that the effect is that two things are being done at once. And in fact, there's no practical limit to how many you can have. At some point, if you have, you know, thousands of threads or maybe tens of thousands of threads, well, switching among them all becomes a problem because it takes so long to get back to any one thread. And then you begin to have some overhead associated with switching threads. So you don't want to have a bazillion, but, but something like Conficker is doing many things at once. It's, it's, checking to make sure that you're not running antivirus programs. It's, and that's one thread's doing that. So one thread, sort of a, a separate little, a little spawned off worker is its full-time job for that one thread is, is making sure that um, anything that you start up that might be used to shut it down doesn't have a chance to get going. Then another thread is, is camped out on some listening TCP and UDP sockets, actually one thread per socket, so that if anything any, uh, comes in and attempts to establish a, a connection, that thread will wake up and say, oh, hi, um, glad to see you. Come on in, you know, send me your data, and we'll see what's going to go on. So I wanted to explain that's what a thread is. Um, it's, it's a beautiful abstraction. I call it an, an abstraction because... Um, in the case of a single processor core, the processor core is only doing one thing at a time. And so, you know, in Windows, we've got multiple applications and the multiple applications probably have multiple threads. So, you know, this one processor is jumping all over the place, not only between individual applications, but between parts of the application where each part is a thread. And again, it's because the system is so fast that it all sort of seems like everything's moving forward and, and alive and running simultaneously, when in fact, it's literally, it's time sharing. So this, this thread jumping is, is a sort of a form of, of time sharing within a single application. What's cool about multiple cores is if the system has the job like a like a a, um, a a contemporary operating system has a bunch of applications and they all have a bunch of threads. Well, then the unit of execution is the thread, 
And if you've got four cores, like a quad core processor, well, you can literally be doing four things at once. So it scales very nicely. You add cores, and instead of having to, you know, instead of having one processor that's madly flying around trying to keep all of the threads moving forward by giving them all a little slice of time, now you actually have two or four cores that are able to simultaneously be running from this myriad of threads in the system, pushing them all forward in time. So it's a nice way of actually leveraging, you know, additional processing power. Okay. So with that bit of foundation, um, we know that Microsoft identified and patched on, you know, on October 23rd of 2008, a flaw in Windows, which was one of the many dreaded remote execution flaws, meaning that, that there was, if you had an open port that, and your computer was just sitting there with this port exposed, a packet could come into the port, and this is a TCP connection over port 445, which would create a, um, a connection to the so-called RPC service, the remote procedure call. And it was then able to take advantage of a, of a small defect in Windows that would cause the payload that it provided with the packet to be executed. And um, in the case of Conficker, what, what Conficker did with this, with this packet was it actually caused the computer that had received this packet to open a reverse connection in the other direction back to the the IP provided in the packet and and establish a connection to a service that Conficker was also running in that attacking machine that would cause the 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 victim to download all of Conficker. So just, so the first thing was not Conficker that that of that first arriving infection was not Conficker. It was just a it was it was a a packet that only had enough code in it to cause that the that victim machine to to reach out and essentially download Conficker from that source target. So, okay, right off the bat, a number of machines are going to be protected. First of all, since port 445 has been a source of so many horrors through Windows history, I mean, it is the, the Windows file and printer sharing port and many other things are are overloaded on that port. Many other services are available. So it's, you know, it's a ripe port for exploitation. The the good news is many ISPs have responded by blocking it at their own borders. So no 445 traffic is able to to transit into the ISP's network. Now it's not clear whether you are blocked from uh, from other systems within the ISP's network. That is, it's not clear how fine-grained that blocking is. It's not clear that, you know, somebody nearby, like literally on your block, if you're using a cable modem, would not be able to reach your 445 port from, from their machine. But it is the case, for example, that, you, that 
many ISPs are blocking incoming traffic from from further out on the internet into their um, internal customer network. So that would prevent incoming infections. Also, any properly configured NAT router would prevent incoming connections. And I say properly configured because how many times, Leo, have you and I told people, begged them, advised them, implored them to disable universal plug plug and play? play. (laughs) Yes. So this this opens it up? Conficker does. Conficker is a universal plug and play client, which will which will reach out and open um, incoming ports through your firewall and router if you have not disabled universal plug and play. So, so it's a perfect example of you know of of why universal plug and play was a really bad idea. So just from to, a security standpoint, just to underscore this: we say a router is a firewall. It is a firewall. It will protect you, except that if something does get on your system and you allow a universal plug-and-play, it just opens the ports and says, come on in, guys. Right. Right. Universal plug-and-play allows you to do, through a network protocol, all the kinds of things you can do through the user interface on the router, like open static ports and set up a DMZ. And, in fact, the universal plug-and-play interface is even more powerful than than what is surfaced on the user, you know, the web-based user interface of most of the standard consumer routers. Wow. Wow. So, you know, there's... And without warning, without any notice, it just does it. Right. Completely silent, no pop-ups, no security, no passwords. I mean, this was just an, an a ridiculously insecure thing uh, for Microsoft, of course, was pushing it because it was part of their, you know, plug-and-play It w- w- was a prior technology that we saw for many years in Windows that allowed Windows to recognize when you put something in. It's like, oh, I, you know, look, a new piece of hardware has appeared. Let me go find a driver for it if I can. That was plug and play, and this was, you know, universal plug and play that that was sort of awkwardly named because it is, is a completely different technology. But it was the same goal. Yeah. It was just it was it was to allow discoverability, <laughs> yeah. so that universal example, open my ports so I'm insecure. That's yeah, exactly. It. Yeah. The idea was it would be a zero configuration sort of thing so that if you ran some software on your computer that uh, no, it was intended to automatically configure your firewall or, or your router, it would be able to send out a broadcast to your network and say, hi there, we got any routers out there? And the router would, through universal plug and play, say, oh, yeah, hey, I'm over here. Oh, and then the, the malware, if, that, if it was in this case malicious, would say, oh, good. Uh, you know, lower your shields, please. Yeah. Let me in. Let my friends yeah. in. Let them yeah. all in. Wow. Yeah. Well, but, you know, it's interesting. It's almost like the guys who wrote this listen to this show. Um, well, they're definitely, you know, they're, they're up on security tuned in again. Yeah. The this is taking advantage of of every available facility. Now, it's worth explaining also just to make sure just another definition that we understand the difference between a worm and a virus. Because this is a worm in as much as that if left alone, it would infect all the machines on the Internet that are that are infectable. That is, it needs no user interaction at all. Once it's launched onto the net, it finds vulnerable hosts, infects them, 
with no user interaction and they turn around and start trying to infect others. Now, one thing that's different about Conficker than, for example, MS Blast or Code Red is those worms, you, we may remember, really brought down um, or, or seriously challenged big chunks of the Internet because they're, they were so rapidly reproducing. They were pouring packets out as fast as they could. So it had two consequences. One was they tended to rapidly find other infectable machines and infect them. But also it was like little local denial of service attacks. And so if a network had a whole bunch of code red infected in it, you know, it would pretty much go off the net just because its own infections were so actively trying to find other machines. By by comparison, Conficker is very patient. In my own instance of it here, and I've seen this confirmed in, in other analysis, um, it sends maybe, oh, three to four packets a second, which compared to what it could be doing is really slow. I mean, it's very patient. It's just sort, that, it just sort of pokes away. Is that so that you out. won't notice it, that it's, uh, that it's using a lot of bandwidth? Yes, I can't see any real other advantage. For example, mine. One, one thing people do uh, to see if they're infected is they look at the lights on their router, and if it's flickering when nothing's going on, they go, "Oh, somebody's using my uh, connection." Right. If it's going crazy, on the other hand, you know, mine. I, I, I'm using a hub so that I'm able to monitor Conficker with another machine. Um, and I mean, if I look at the lights, it's going blink, 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 blink. Blink, blink, blink. You know, nothing to worry few, about. Normal. It's a few packets a second, but it's not going. Right, right. You know, I mean, let's like crazy. And that's what we have seen, you know, in, in the case of, of other malware infections. So it really it's staying under the radar um, that way. It also hmm. does make it less easy to find the clients. Anything that's out there, you know, a, a malware, which is pouring traffic out at at random IPs, its own IP is going to end up being known by anybody who's curious because all they have to do is put, a, is put a, a packet monitor on a block of IPs and they're going to see all of this searching traffic coming in to that block of IPs that is from, from all of the different um, infected machines on the internet that are searching for other machines to infect. So by being much more slow about this, um, although it means that it's going to be slower to find another machine, it also kind of keeps it under the radar. It's got and all the time in the world. I've got to say, too, that as, as we go through the way these, these Conficker variations have changed over time, you know, there's this, this desire to find meaning in these changes. It's like, okay, what's the guy thinking? Why, you know... Why is it done this? For example, Conficker A would immediately abort if the keyboard layout of the computer it had entered was Ukrainian. So if 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 it would check the keyboard layout and if it was a Ukrainian <laughs> layout kind of keyboard, it would not infect. That makes you think um, it might be a Ukrainian that uh, spread it. Yes, there are several reasons to believe that. Um, there's one company in particular, Baka Software, B-A-K-A, is a well-known uh, uh, sort of you know shady uh, 
operator who's who's been responsible for all kinds of mischief in the past. There was one connection that was caught by some folks that were analyzing Conficker, and they they set up a big honey net in order to in order to look at 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 traffic patterns and and levels of activity on the internet. There was one packet that they found where it was it was Conficker B that was I'm trying to remember it was it was it was a cross version packet. So I it was it was Conficker B that was set up to infect Conficker A. And that's never the case in any version of Conficker. That is the versions always it, it, with A and B, they would they would they had defenses against anyone malicious taking them over. Interesting. So A huh. would you you use A's protocol to 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 spread version A. B would use B's variant protocol to spread version B. Well, this was one connection that was that was deliberately using A's protocol to spread version B. So it would be upgrading A's to B, and it happened that that came in from this a, a block that is known to be used by this Baca software group in the in in the Ukraine. So there's some reason to suspect that there's some connection there. Interesting. Um, but again, unfortunately, so much of this is just. It, it it's you know you're you're having to to divine intent and 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 what's you know what what's behind the the design decisions that are being made um okay so um we know how it originally started it originally started by taking advantage of this ex this vulnerability which was patched on October 23rd um I think it was November 10th. So not long afterwards was the first appearance of Conficker A, the first variation of Conficker, which says that a lot of this code was already ready. That is, we hadn't seen this worm before, but this is too much for someone to write in 17 days between or 18 days between the 23rd and the, the 10th of November. So, I mean, and a lot of this had to be perfected. Um, when we get a sense for the, the, the technology in here, you'll see that it's just way too much. So somebody had this and was waiting for a vulnerability to surface. Now, of course, the embarrassment is that, is that the patch was issued on the second Tuesday uh, well, actually not in in this case, it's October 23rd. So it was, it was a, 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 an out of cycle patch, not the second Tuesday of the month that Microsoft patched it. Cause they recognized this was important enough to talk about. It. And we talked about it on security now, of course, back then, cause this is, you know, you don't want to leave any, any wide open, uh, remote wormable exploits available for any longer than you have to. My, so Microsoft did an out of cycle patch to close this. And still, months later, many months later, there are machines that have not been patched. And as we were talking about this before, um, it seems that a an analysis of the population shows that the the density of conficker infections, which are determinable 
by looking at the incoming IPs into a honey net that is a block of IPs that is set up sort of as like an internet telescope in order to see um, what, what's going out on the internet. The incoming IPs generally are highest in concentration in geographic regions of the world where piracy is more prevalent. So it does look like there's a correlation between unpatched machines and pirated copies of Windows. So um, the actual payload of Conficker is it's a DLL, a dynamic link library, which is um, first compressed using a well-known compression tool, UPX. It's the one I use myself. It's a very nice executable packing program that makes um, Windows executables much smaller because the, the format that Microsoft designed is inefficient in terms of, its, it, of, of the XE size. So it's possible to, to use standard compression techniques uh, to make it much smaller. Then it is, it is further obfuscated so that, so that when it's, even if you decompress the XE, it still doesn't look like regular code. It needs to get into RAM and then it sort of, it sort of self decrypts itself. So in order to do an analysis of it, it's necessary to actually load it into memory and then take a snapshot of memory in order to, to see what's going. Um, it, it installs itself in the service host XE process. If you know anyone who's used Windows and is security aware has looked at their list of running processes and they'll see a bunch of SVC host.exe. The idea is that that in, in Windows, an executable program, you always sort of have to have an, 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 an exe as an anchor, but then the exe can either have with it or can load dynamic link libraries into that e executable process space. So what Conficker does is it injects itself into an existing instance of serviced host exe by causing by, by injecting a thread and causing the thread to to run load library that loads the DLL into the process. Um, it does a number of other clever things. For example, the way a DLL, a dynamic link library, loads is there's an initialization sort of stub at the beginning of the DLL that Windows calls in order to let the DLL set itself up and sort of do an internal housekeeping, that, that stub is always returned from. And after that returns, th there's like a, a, a return code, success or fail. So it's possible for the DLL to say, whoops, whatever it is I needed, I didn't find here, so terminate me, do not load me. Um, or the DLL is able to say, hey, everything's fine. I'm ready to stay resident here in this process. So Windows waits for that return in order to list the DLL among those that are that is part of this process. Well, Conficker cleverly never returns from that initialization. It accepts, it accepts the fact that it's running and it spawns a bunch of threads to do all kinds of things never goes back to Windows. So Windows never lists it as a DLL that's part of the process. And it's one of the ways that Conficker stays invisible. It also has a null string name 
um, when it registers as a process, it does so w- with an empty string name and it flags itself as as make me invisible, which is one of the status bits that, that a process is able to set. So again, it works on on remaining sort of off the radar. But it's it's um, it's not a root kit, though, is it? Well, it, it's I wouldn't call it a root kit, but it does a lot of things in order to hide. Um, I, I'm going to run through a bunch of these specific things it does to hide because it, and it's also evolved over time. Um, one of the things that it needs to do is it needs to know its public IP. If it's if it has infected a machine behind a NAT router, the only IP it has is you know like one nine two dot one six eight dot one dot one or one dot five or whatever you know the the non routable IP. But when it sends its packet out to infect another machine, and the way the infection works is that a, a reverse connection is made from the victim back to the attacking machine, the 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 attacking machine has to know the public IP. So you get a load of this. It uses well-known IP checking sites. It connects to getmyip.org or getmyip.co.uk or checkip.dyndns.org. It has, it knows all, the, the A variant knows all three of those, so it chooses one or two at random in order, to, or it actually chooses them until it until it gets the answer that it's looking for, and uses that remote site whose job is to tell you your IP. It parses the return page to get the IP that is public for its router. It also downloads a a geographic IP database. From MaxMind.com, the the GeoIP database relates IPs to locations, and it uses that in order to avoid attacking any IPs in the Ukraine. Huh. Again, the Ukraine. So when it's again gen- the Ukraine. Yes. So when it's generating random IPs, it fil- it's care it carefully filters out any Ukrainian IPs. Now, now if I were the, writing a virus and I lived in the Ukraine, that would be a very handy thing to make sure I didn't infect myself, my friends and family with my virus. And to make sure you don't upset the local authorities. Oh, yeah, cuz that's the jurisdiction I'm in, isn't it? Exactly. Oh, very good point. And we know that there it's much harder to get cross country cooperation right. Right. than it is to upset, you know, the the police station around the block. And so, so it's been, it's been, been again, it's, it's been surmised that they're not attacking anybody in the Ukraine because they don't want to, they don't want to rouse the local authorities, which again, I think is very clever. That's smart. Yeah. Now, one of the new technologies that we have not seen in previous worms that, that the A variant of con, of Conficker starts is this notion of using a pseudo random number uh, pseudo random essentially it's well, it's, it's pseudo random number generator that maps to pseudo random domain names um Conficker version a and this is one aspect that has changed a lot because it was one area where it was vulnerable to being blocked Conficker version a every day would um generate 250 domain names based upon the utc date it would get the utc date by by querying a lar- from among a large number 
of well-known public websites. One of the headers that comes back when you request a page is the current date and time in 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 universal time. So that that way it knew sort of globally that way all the configur instances all over the world would be synchronized to the to the same UTC date, which would mean that that on a given day they would all use the date to seed the pseudo-random number generator, which was used to generate domain names. And the A variant of Conficker would would try we would generate 250 domain names based on that pseudo-random generator and then and then perform DNS lookups to look up the IP of that domain name um, using you know the standard public DNS system and then attempt to make a connection on port 80 to a server, a web server, because of port 80, a web server running on that port, if it uh, succeeded by um, in downloading a binary file, it would then go through a substantial process, which I'll describe in a second, to verify the validity of that file. Now, the B variant um, made some changes. Um, for example, the B variant dispensed with the keyboard detection, so it would no longer abort if you had a Ukrainian keyboard layout defined in Windows, but it still did the GOIP uh, data in order to filter out Ukrainian IPs, and that has remained to this day. So Configure really doesn't want to upset, apparently, the Ukrainian authorities. Um, B also began the, 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 the task of terminating many popular antivirus and it began blocking DNS lookups to prevent you from from going um, to like Symantec or Microsoft or Windows Update to do things that were related to maybe wondering if your computer might be infected or or finally getting the update that would um, uh, that that would cure this problem. On the other hand, all versions of Conficker have closed the door behind them. Conficker got in. By using this um, MS, uh, what is it, 08-dash, I can't remember the number, I thought like dash 68 or something, the, 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 you know, Microsoft's ID for this exploit, um, what they did was they would modify, by patching in memory, they would modify the, the vulnerability so that only they could subsequently use it to prevent somebody else from coming up with something malicious that would knock Conficker out of the system. So after they got in, they didn't completely close the door, but they filtered any other incoming traffic to make sure that it was them. So, I mean, you know, a lot of thought was given to this. Um, B also began to incorporate extensive anti-debugging and anti-reverse engineering defenses this is technology that's been known and done for years, uh, a lot of it in the hacking community, to, to prevent malware from being reverse engineered. So these concepts were not new, but, you know, it's an, another layer of defense that Conficker was, was employing. For example, it's possible for software to tell 
if it is being single stepped through, which is one of the typical things you do when you reverse engineering code, is you you know you 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 go step at a time in order to see what the code is going to do, sort of running it under supervision. But that always messes up, of course, the timing. And there's there are uh, so not only timing, but there are other means that can be used to see if breakpoints are being set in the code. So there's there's much that can be done for code to protect itself against analysis. And Convoker does a lot of that. Um, it uses a um, an additional set of public um, services to de- to determine its IP. It uses getmyip.org also what's my ip address.com what's what is my ip.org and and additionally as did version a check ip.dyndns.org so there's you know there there's been some evolution and variation in conficker's behavior over time um uh it oh oh and whereas the a variant went to maxmind.com to load the GOIP filter version A incorporates it internally yeah, it it uses rar you mean, to compre- you mean version version C I'm sorry no no B so B. version B uses uses it, it incorporates the GOIP list internally it it uses rar to compress it and then rc4 to encrypt it and so it's it's part of the payload it's built into the body of Conficker version B. Does it seem sensible? It sounds to me like this is the case that it's the same guy doing all three versions. Oh yeah, yeah. There's no doubt that this is the same. This the same guy, and it's it's clear that it's you know it's it's wow. Look how A is succeeding. I I can make it even better. So it's probably some um um some uh notion of wow you know it's been it's succeeded beyond my wildest imagination now i'm motivated to put more time and energy into it oh, the way yeah exactly <laughs> the way the way Convoker protects itself is really interesting also it um it it i mentioned before that it digitally signs uh itself so when anything is going to be accepted by an an existing version, like an upgrade to Conficker, taking it from from A to B or B to C, uh, or beyond C potentially, and that appears to be happening now. the The block of executable code is hashed using a a, dig, a digital signature algorithm. A used SHA one, B Conficker B used md6 what's interesting is it is that ron rivest of rsa who designed md6 publicly disclosed and announced and released md6 just two weeks before conficker b incorporated it wow so, wow so, that's amazing i mean this this sounds like this guy's like a genius well he's he's in the game i yeah. mean he's actively watching what's going on in the industry and and you know on some level participating a little side note the very first release of md6 had a bug a there was a buffer overrun glitch in md6 which was found and corrected um this guy was so quick to get md6 into conficker b that he incorporated that bug 
although it, it, the, the nature of the way it's used would not allow anyone to take advantage of that in order to, to like, you know, take over Conficker. So it didn't represent a, a weakness in his case. Um, okay, so the code is hashed to create a, a 512-bit hash. That hash is used as the key, the symmetric encryption key for the RC4 stream cipher that we've talked about at length in prior, in previous podcasts. RC4, you'll remember, was the cipher used um, in WEP encryption, which, when used wrong, is a bad thing. In this case, um, it's used in a sort of a non-critical fashion. So uh, the 512-bit hash is used as the key to encrypt the binary. Then it is signed using public key encryption. The hash is raised to the power of a private key um, taken mod N to create a signature. And that signature is appended to the end of the package. That's the package then which is sent to a, a, a potential recipient version of Conficker. So it reverses the process. It takes the public key, which it contains, raises the signature to that value, mod n, and due to the miracle of public key encryption, that produces the hash. So it then uses the hash to decrypt using RC4. Remember that RC4 is just a it's just a pseudo-random stream, so it generates the same pseudo-random stream as was used to encrypt it. XORs the stream with the body of the of the payload and that produces decryption. It then uses that it then hashes that and compares it to the original hash. Only if they match does it know it was signed by somebody who had the who had the the private key, meaning the author, and nobody else is ever going to have that. So only the author is able to produce new payloads, which would be injected into the Conficker system. Um, the A variant uses a one k bit um, RSA modulus. The B variant uses a four k. Again, just because why not? You know, one k was good enough. 4K, well, that's even better. Um, so, you know, you begin to get a sense for the amount of technology. I mean, you know, state-of-the-art crypto technology, which is in this and and is serving the purpose of, of keeping this thing alive, preventing it from being commandeered, and, and maintaining the, this mysterious owner of this thing in control of this network. Now, the so the we, we talked about how domains are being generated. Two hundred and fifty domains per day were generated by the A variant, but they all they only had the top level domains of .com, .net, .org, .info, and .biz. So you know pretty much the the five most popular domains. The problem is that two fifty a day in those top-level domains, that was it was easy for the the so-called Conferger cabal, the you know, the anti-Conferger folks, the 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 white hats who were trying to protect us from this, it was easy for them to generate the 250 domains for tomorrow 
and the day after and the day after and go pre-register them so that they were able to block Conficker from being able to um, to expand. Well, the first thing that happened, well, I'm sorry, to block Conficker from being able to basically phone home in order to get an update to itself. Because the idea would be that the, the malware author would go and register a domain sometime in the, in like a domain that would be used by Conficker next week. They'd register the domain and set up a web server at, you know, point that, point that DNS address to some IP that they controlled, set up a web server there with a signed package, signed using the technology we just talked about. And so then what would happen is on that day, all the Conficker worms that knew what day it was would generate 250 domain names and try them all. One of them would be a hit and it, only t- it would only take one. They would find that one, look up the IP, connect to that TCP server and download a binary payload, use their public key to verify the signature and, um, and to generate the hash used for decrypting it, verify that and run the code. So, I mean, you know, lots of technology here. B added three more top-level domains to that approach, .ws, .cn, and .cc. Um, uh, the other thing that B did was it expanded the domains that it uses for determining the date. It used w3.org, ask.com, msn.com, yahoo.com, google.com, um, and uh, Beidou, B-A-I-D-U.com. Um, yeah, that's like a Google for uh, China. Baidu. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, then the big change that we talked about uh, uh, several weeks ago was was the one that also made a lot of press, unfortunately. I mean, a lot of, you know, sort of Y2K scare stuff was what would happen with Configur on April Fool's Day, on April 1st. Because the C variant was designed to have its behavior change. Um, is, we did talk is, about is this. Is the C variant the one that you've, you've been using or you've been yes. playing with? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. C variant is the one I've got. And Has it, did it, I mean, it, it, it ran, but did it ever get any data on April Fool's? Or? No, it's, well, no. What happened was its behavior changed. It suddenly began querying, it began generating 50,000 domains up from 250. So to 50,000, from which 500 would be randomly selected. And not only that, but whereas, whereas A, the A variant used those f- the five most popular top-level domains, and the B variant added those three more, WS, CN, and CC, <laughs> the C variant uses 110 different TLDs. I mean, just about everything you can think of. And that creates a huge problem because, you know, these are TLDs literally spread globally and under the control of a phenomenal number of registrars. Beforehand, all you had to deal with was the registrars who who were registrars for .com, .net, .org, .info, .biz, and then later WSCN and CC. Now, you've got, if, if you're going to preemptively register You've got a big problem. Not only do you have to preempt, preemptively register 50,000 domain names per day, 
but you've got to do them with all the registrars controlling these 110 possible top-level domains. So with, with the C variant, you know, this whole notion of this cat and mouse basically uh, really got escalated. Oh, it was, it was MS-08-67 was the original variant, uh, the original vulnerability uh, which was being used for exploitation. So, so I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Okay. So, okay. So a propagated. So, so we, so, so we have the way Configure phones home by generating domains and trying to contact a, a server at a pseudo randomly generated domain name, which has been, you know, is no knowable in advance but has been made much more complex when we after April 1st when we switched to variant C. The, the only way that the A variant caused infections was the same way it got infected. That is, it would send out the, the, um, the, the packet, the, the so-called server message block, an SMB protocol packet to port 445 using the TCP protocol, it would connect to the um, the server surface and and take advantage of the vulnerability in the it was the um, um, the original vulnerability that was supposed to be fixed. So a machine that got infected that way would attempt to reinfect other machines, um, and what it would do is it would just generate IPs at random and an attempt to make a port 445 connection to them, although it would avoid the Ukraine, you know, any IPs that were physically geographically located in, in the Ukraine. Um, the B variant added two additional propagation techniques, which oddly were removed from C. So it hasn't always been escalating it's you know it's it's like its behavior has been changing for one reason or another and in fact c is less effective because these other two op, um approaches were removed b would use netbios shares to propagate um it would it would look for other machines on the local area network and then it contained a list of 240 common passwords and so it would attempt to connect to any other machines any other shares on other machines and get into them that way and oh and this had an interesting side effect too because in w w within corporate IT where policies could be enforced um, if Conficker got in and begin scanning the network finding machines and attempting to log into them and guessing wrong that would trigger the account lockout policies. And so the, in, the actual users were unable to log into their machine because their machine would say, sorry, uh, you've had too many failed uh. pass, you know, uh, <laughs> log, log, login attempts. Uh, you, you're locked out until you talk to your IT administrator. Wow. Um, but B did something else. If, you, if it saw a removable drive arrive or in the system when it got there, it would copy itself to the removable drive and edit the autorun.inf file to cause that to cause itself to be run whenever that drive was plugged in somewhere else. So it would use USB 
propagation in order to in order to to move from from one system to another. Um, so um, C removed those two other strategies, but also changed an, it added another another approach using the uh, the the SMB essentially you using a so-called named pipe which is one of the APIs in Windows that allows you to essentially connect a to establish a, a connection between two machines anywhere on the internet and and send data back and forth through the so-called pipe which is really just a, a connection but between those so in terms of hiding itself Configure has always taken you know, gone to some extremes to hide itself. Um, it would give itself a random name in the Windows System 32 directory and set its time and date stamp to the same time and date as kernel 32, which was clever because with, with, with service pack updates and security updates, there's normally a bunch of things that are going to be have to have the same time and date stamp. But rather than you know, ra- rather than, for example, not doing that, one of the first things people who are like used to looking for malware in machines do is they'll they'll sort the directory listing by date and time and look for the most recent changes in the directory, thinking that you know something may have if if it got into the system recently, it'll have a a, a current uh, date and time stamp. Well, Configure says, ah, not so fast. We're going to set our own file date to the same thing. As that we know a lot of other files will be set for, which is the, the date and time of kernel32.dll. It also um, uh, sets up multiple threads. One th- thread provides a constant security service disable so that if any security services are, are running, like Windows Update, it'll shut that down or... Um, you know any of the other um, third-party services? It, it looks at at a whole bunch. There's like auto runs, Avenger, uh, Config, and and Down Add are both cleanup utilities. FileMon, um, Hotfix, um, uh, Regmon, TCP View, Wireshark. It knows about all these different processes and terminates them uh, if you try to run them. It also is is getting very smart about the IPs that are returned from DNS lookups. If if any DNS lookup returns more than one IP, it says, ah, I don't think so, and it just ignores it. Or if it's a stub IP, like 127.0.0.1, which is which is a local host IP, that's, that's something that, for example, I imagine the anti-malware guys were doing was they would, they would register, instead of having to, instead of setting Conficker off to some other server, they may have been setting them up as just setting the IP to 127.0.0.1, causing it to try to connect to itself, which would fail. But it was just a sort of a nice way of, of stubbing that lookup. Well, Configure over time became smart. It also uh, maintains a um, blacklisted addresses. And if it ever got an IP from one DNS lookup that it got from another DNS lookup, it would note the collision and not bother to connect to that same IP. So the other behavior that the the good guys might have had is to aim, when they were like pre-registering all these IPs, they would aim them like, you know, at some monitoring location, saying, okay, well, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to pre-register all these to, you know, uh, 
you know, XYZ um, internet address. Well, later on, Confricker began remembering all the IPs that it had received. And if it ever got the same one a second time, it said, well, I already already contacted that. And I don't want to be, you know, tricked because it knew that no, that that its own um, secret phone home IP would only be listed at one DNS or that it would have contacted it and there's no reason to contact it again. So it was getting smarter over time. It also had a, um, a, lo- a long list of, of slash eight networks. That is the first byte of an IP address. It, it knew that, you know, like one um, and or like zero, one, two, five, 10, 14, 23, 27, 31, 36, on, 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 are invalid IPs. And we know that, for example, five is an invalid, anything starting with five, because that was what the Hamachi um, peer-to-peer system used, because it, it was an IP space that had never been allocated. So Con- so Conficker was evolving over time, making a better use of, of the resources that it had. Um, and it's just... Um, you know, a very robust, strong, um, you know, piece of malware. Um, I, I wanted to read the final paragraph in a report from SRI International that that did an analysis of this. They 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 said Conficker C is in fact a robust and secure distribution utility for the di- for distributing malicious content and binaries to millions of computers across the internet. This utility incorporates a potent arsenal of methods to defend itself from security products, updates, and diagnosis tools. It further demonstrates the rapid development pace at which Conficker's authors are maintaining their current foothold on a large number of Internet-connected hosts. Further, if organized into a coordinated offensive weapon, this multi-million node botnet poses a serious and dire threat to the internet. Mm. Wow. Well, it sounds like it does. Now, I was just looking and I saw that, at, at least according to Symantec, that some uh, Cs had updated themselves to E uh, after the April Fool's thing in the last couple of days. Yes, that, that was what finally motivated me to install my own, uh, my own configure are in you, a honeypot. Are you letting it update? Yes. Yes, I'm not. I'm not allowing it to attack anybody else. But I am hoping it's going to go. I want to see it. Con, you know, discover somebody and get itself updated. Oh, interesting. It, it was shortly after April first. The, the the news went around the security community that that we that there was there was an encrypted package that was being acquired by C. And so I was like, oh, okay. At that point, I thought this thing's not going away. I got to get in the game yeah. and you know and and be watching it myself. Very interesting. I got to say, it's uh, very sophisticated. Do you think it's a team of people? Must be a team of people. I don't think so. I mean, not necessarily. One person could easily do this. One smart network aware author could easily do this. Could be his life's work. His great achievement. um, You know, who knows what the goal is or the plan. Well, the the E variant put uh, one of those creepy antivirus things on there. Yes, I was going to say there is now some scareware that is being downloaded by the most recent uh, conficker. And so it, you know, it may be that they're decided, well, we might as well commercialize this now because uh, we've established ourselves. We're in millions of machines worldwide. 
we're, you know, we, we basically, we've got a technology that can live as long as it's able to. We're able to give it encrypted, digitally signed payloads anytime by, by just, you know, knowing which domain we want to register ahead of time, grabbing that, aiming it at our web server, and con- some percentage of configurers will find it. The ones that don't will be establishing a peer-to-peer network among themselves, and they'll be able to pass it back and forth that way. So we've got two things. We've got, we've got conflictors interlinked through a peer-to-peer network. That is, they're sending these packets out, trying to find other copies of themselves that, that interlinks them in this peer-to-peer network, and they're also periodically, you know, daily, um, attempting to use DNS lookups on pseudo-random, num- num- pseudo-random number-generated domain names to basically phone home in order to get um, payload updates that way. So it's a, you know, a very sophisticated network designed to survive what anybody tries to do to it to, to shut it down. And since since it's using public key encryption for its digital signatures, we don't know the, the private key. We cannot know the private key. Only the author knows. And so that prevents anybody who might want to, even good guys, from, from taking advantage of that and, and leveraging that in order to somehow deal with this problem. It's really uh, uh, an interesting... Um study isn't it i mean this it is, is I, I it's a perfect case study in in what how the technology can be used in in order you know by a sophisticated author creating a sophisticated state of the art piece of malicious software yeah. i mean there there really isn't anything that this guy hasn't or or team ha- hasn't come up with and the other thing is thanks to the fact that they've got this this dynamic update facility they're able to respond to what the industry does. And that's what we've seen them do. Anything that the Configur cabal have come up with in order to thwart Configur, the author said, okay, fine. I'll just bump the domain names up from 250 a day to 500 a day, chosen from a set of 50,000. Let's see you pre-register all of those in 110 different top levels. Hmm. I guess the other thing we learned from this is how to protect ourselves. I mean, you, uh, it's demonstrating all the all the holes, all the things that you might be want to be paying attention to. Well, like yeah, auto I run mean, and uh, universal plug and play. I mean, there's a lot of it's, what I liked about it is that everything we've talked about in yeah. the approaching four years of this podcast um, are things that if our listeners were diligent about doing, uh, would be one less way that they could be bitten by this. Right, right. Because if they've got universal plug and play disabled. If, you know they're they're going to be in better shape, and if they've got uh, auto run disabled on on uh, on removable drives, they're going to be in better shape. So yeah, I mean it's a it's an example of why security matters and how you can be protected by security. It surely does, Ollie. Well, thank you. Very interesting uh, expose. You can read more about this on Steve's website, Security Now is at uh, grc.com slash security. Now, show notes there, 16 kilobit versions, full transcript of all shows, uh, all online at grc.com, along with Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and all of Steve's freebies, too. There's lots of great free stuff there. More stuff coming soon. Very good. Next week, Q&A. Yep. Submit your questions to grc.com slash feedback. There you go. 
Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. You've, you've, this is a, kind of like a ghost story. <laughs> you, you scared me. <laughs> it's all true, too. I mean, it yeah. is impressive that this this author or team have really done something. And and now the question is, what's it going to do next? Yeah. I mean, this thing is alive. It's a it's, it's a creature alive. of internet. What's it going to do next? Thank you, Steve Gibson. We'll see you uh, next Thursday. On Thanks, security. Security now.